Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our show today was recorded on location at Still Motion Studios in Portland, Oregon. So I want to apologize in advance for the quality of the recording because we were tucked away in a little room that had terrible echoes. Anyway, my guest today is Grant Peel. Grant is the creative director of Still Motion Studios. And we're going to discuss today an exciting project, which is their first full-length original documentary about a most intriguing subject. If, if there is anything that could be called new consciousness, it's this film, it's called Stand With Me. So welcome, Grant. I'm well, so thank glad. you. I'm excited to be with you. Oh, I'm excited to discuss this film. This is such an important thing and has a fascinating backstory. Tell me about the film. Tell me about the nine-year-old darling who got you into it. Certainly. So uh, we came into this story via a project that we do each year called Share. So as a studio, we're filmmakers, and we are filmmakers who want to tell stories that change the world. And so we do a give-back project. It's called Share. Rather than give a, uh, a portion of the profits of our studio, we donate our time to a worthy cause. And so we're always in search for this, this really compelling story where we feel like we can leverage that and do something remarkable. So Patrick, uh, co-director in the film, makes a discovery call. And he had heard of this little nine-year-old girl in Fairfax, California, who decided that she was going to use lemonade to fight slavery. So he places the phone call and he talks to her dad, Eric, and at the completion of the call, he hangs up and he immediately calls me and he says, listen, the other two documentaries that we have in pre-production, you need to halt those immediately. I found the story we're going to tell. And it's not the small piece that we do for Cher. This is a feature doc. And he couldn't have been any more right. So we, we are following the courage of this young girl who's decided that she's going to, get, she's going to use lemonade to free 500 slaves. And she got this idea from a photograph. There's this compelling humanitarian photographer, Lisa Christine, who has traveled to 100 countries. She's been to six continents, and she has this body of work, decades worth of work, where she does humanitarian photography. And she wants, she wants us to connect with the, the common core humanity that we all share, despite the fact that we have outward appearances that are so, you know, uh, significantly different than one another. We have those cultural references that are so significantly different. And so Lisa goes to the ends of the world to connect with people and to, to do that photography. As a result, some, an invitation that she received to exhibit in 2009 at the Peace Summit, she was introduced some, to someone who volunteers for a group called Free the Slaves. And through the course of conversation, this volunteer educates Lisa to the idea that slavery still exists. And this just sat in the fiber of who Lisa is. She, she was really bowled over by the idea that, that slavery still exists. She, like many, thought that this was eradicated in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And the more that she learned, the more compelled she felt she needed to do something. And she too, like our studio, wanted to use her talents specifically to do something about it. And so she reached out to Free the Slaves and said, let's do something. And Free the Slaves, as an abolitionist group, knew that at the forefront of any successful abolitionist campaign, they've always used compelling imagery. They've always used the kind of thing that 
would cause someone to become so aware of this issue that they'd want to take action. They'd want to do something. They couldn't ignore the reality of what it is that was happening. And so Lisa and Free the Slaves got together and they did a piece that ends up being this nice, large coffee table book that's entitled Enslaved. And it's Lisa going to several different countries and exposing slavery as it exists in our world. Well, one of those images that she took is of these two boys in the Himalaya Mountains in Nepal. And they have these rocks strapped to their backs and braced against their heads, and they weigh as much as the young boys do. And they're carrying down the mountainside. The mountainside. And these two, two boys in particular would lean on one another for support. They'd hold hands as they did this work. And so Lisa has this compelling image of these two boys holding hands with these rocks on their backs. And Vivian was exposed to this photograph by her parents. They were doing some education because the, the parents had been in Sonoma and they had walked into Lisa's gallery and they had seen this photograph on display in the gallery and it, it just absolutely shook them to the core. And so they brought home a book and they were educating their children about it. And when they got to this page and they showed Vivi in this photograph, she turned to her parents and she said, they should be playing. They shouldn't be working like that. And she says, I want to do something. And so they got to talking as a family, and she says, I want to free 500 kids. And they said, wow, you know, okay, well, how are you going to do that? She said, I'll sell my lemonade with that bright-eyed, you know, optimism that a nine-year-old has for what she knows and what she feels like she can do. And so her parents embraced this idea, you know. Unlike most of us, I think, I'm a parent. I, you know, I don't know if my young boys had come to me and said they were going to want to sell lemonade to end slavery globally if I'd have jumped on board this idea, but to the credit of Alex and Eric, they do. And so they set out on this journey to try to use lemonade to eradicate slavery. At first, they sell lemonade at $2 a glass, and they're not getting very far with it because her goal in order to free 500 kids is a six-figure raise. You're talking raising over $100,000 in order to make this happen. And, and then they made a decision. Let's sell our lemonade for free. We'll give it away, and we'll ask people to give what's in their heart. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a pivotal shift in their campaign. And as a result of that, then her community started rallying around her. She started gaining some traction, and she was having some success. And some people kind of pick up on that. Mm-hmm. And there's one notable moment where Nicholas Kristof, who's a reporter for the New York Times, tweeted about Vivian and her story. And then the global community started getting behind her and within us. So she, this young lady, makes 173 consecutive stands. Every single day, rain or shine, 173 consecutive days, she happens to be in New York City at, at the invitation of the mayor to, to have been having her stand there in, New York, in, in, in Times Square, and she meets her goal. Wow. And so the following morning, her parents are with her, and they start talking about, you know, congratulations, and they're, you know, well, what do we do next, that kind of thing. And Vivian says, is slavery done? And they say, of course, no. And she says, then I'm not done. And so she continues this journey. She makes 365 stands in a row, rain or shine. And now they've taken this optimism and this this momentum that she's generated for this idea, and they've bottled the lemonade. And they're putting the lemonade in grocers, and they're going to use the social purpose company, this new way of structuring a company where you don't have to be concerned about profits, you can be concerned about social good. They're going to use that structure to distribute her lemonade and her message, and they're going to continue to fight slavery. Tell me about Vivian. Um, I've seen the, the trailer for the film, mm-hmm. and she looks like quite an extraordinary young lady. 
she is quite a, an extraordinary young lady, and she is for two reasons. One, she's as bright and bubbly and articulate and well-spoken as she represents herself in all of the interviews that you're going to see of her. Mm -hmm. And then, she remains true to being nine. <laughs> there are moments when we've been on, you know, we've been with her filming, and someone will be having a deep conversation with her about, say, bottling lemonade. And so they're talking about maybe considering a new um, bottle. Should we go glass? Should we go aluminum? Should we be considering these things? And she's talking with people in a very adult-like way with a lot of environmental concerns, asking questions about those kinds of things, having a concern. She's, you know, when she's talking about the products that other corporations are using, she has great concern with regard to GMOs and, you know, the kinds of things that you're not naturally a part of a nine-year-old vocabulary. But as soon as the conversation ends, often she'll turn around and say, I'm going to go play. And then, boom, she's off and she's on the rope swing in the backyard or she's, you know, talking and playing with Turner or, you know, she's just completely behaving as you expect any other nine-year-old to behave. And I think that what's most remarkable about her is that she's demonstrating that we don't have to be special to make a difference. Mm -hmm. We just have to be willing. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that separates Vivian from us, is not that she's special in that we should put her on a pedestal and make you know such a big deal out of her being this remarkable nine-year-old, so different from any other nine-year-old. It's the decisions that she's making that are remarkable, not who she is as a person. And that's what's really cool about what we're attempting also to reflect in the message of this film is that this can be any of us. Right. Now, you set out to cover the story of Vivian and what she was doing. And then what happened? Well, she invited into this conversation several other voices. So, you know, through Vivian's journey, we're introduced to other people, notably Lisa Christine, the photographer who took that picture. And so Lisa, so graciously, accepted the invitation to become a larger part of this documentary. And so she shares for us the idea that at one point, most of us don't know that slavery exists. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be okay. We're going to give you permission to know that and acknowledge that it's okay as an audience member not to know. But when Lisa learned of it, she did something. Mm -hmm. And then and then as a result of that, then Vivian sees that work and then we go on the, the trek with Vivian and it was a part of her journey. Once she bottles the lemonade, she has to think about how she's going to source the goods that go into that. Mm -hmm. And that leads us to a discussion about sourcing and fair trade practices and we're introduced to the voice of Paul Rice, CEO and founder of Fair Trade USA. And so what Paul does is he starts to bridge that gap of the knowledge that we can have such an impact in the lives of others and we can help eradicate slavery through fair trade practices by releasing people from poverty and eliminating that vulnerability because so much of enslavement is happening because people are vulnerable. Because other people come in and take, lay, you know, and will take advantage of that position in other people. And so if we are able to implement better practices and treat one another fiscally in a more responsible way, then we can eradicate that vulnerability and have a bigger impact. But what's really cool then is that Vivian's choice to, to do fair trade practices and then to sell her lemonade also allows you to do something about it. It allows you to shop with your voting dollar. Absolutely. And I, I think... One of the things that we tend not to focus on when we think about poverty is a poverty so deep and so desperate that a parent would opt to actually sell their child into slavery in order to provide for the rest of them 
or in, in some kind of misguided hope that somehow life will be better for them than it is now. I think that you, you hit the nail on the head with the misguided hope. It's born out of the vulnerabilities because people don't intentionally sell their children into slavery, but they do find themselves subject to con men. Mm-hmm. Other people who come in and promise a better future for their child if they'll just be entrusted to them. Entrust your child to me, and this is what I'll do. I'll take them to the larger city, I'll get them out of the village, and I'll expose them to education. And then, yeah, I'll ask a few things of them in return for that, right? The occasional bit of help or assistance. And then the parent, knowing fully well that they're not providing for this child on the level that they want, has hope that their child will have a brighter future in the hands of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so that's, this, that's that decision of desperation, that moment where they say, yes, I'll yield this child over to you because you're going to provide more in a much more rich way than I can. And then, of course, once the child's entrusted to, the, to this other person, that's when they become enslaved. Mm-hmm. And that's when they're taken to an area where they have no communication and they have no voice, and then they're, you know, they're beaten and they're threatened and they have, you know, they have, they have no choice but to continue enslaved. Tell me some of the situations you looked into. Well, uh, there are several different ways that um, children are enslaved and several different practices um, that are known for it. So there, um, there's brick kiln practices where children are enslaved in that. There, uh, rugs is another large area where um, children are enslaved. In Ghana, children are taken to Lake Volta and they're made to fish. And Ray and I went to Ghana and filmed this uh, firsthand where we visited with a group who's doing frontline eradication efforts over there and rehabilitation efforts with the children who they're able to liberate from slavery. And so it was under their guidance that we traveled to Lake Volta and we got on the big boat and we set out into the lake and then there was a, there was a gentleman, Stephen, who was our guide, who had been enslaved as a child and had been freed and liberated and he's now a frontline abolitionist and he's the kind of guy that you know when you're in his presence, that he has that energy of such core confidence that, you know, you, 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 I've thought occasionally in my life I've been brave, but I don't know bravery. I have no idea what that is. Stephen lives it to his core. You see it in his eyes. You understand what it means to be brave when you're in his presence. And so he, so willingly, was able to take us directly to these small boats. They look like canoes where you'll see an adult on there and and one or two children. And from afar, it looks as if it's a family fishing. But when we approach him, Steve would engage in conversation with him. And he'd start asking questions about, is the child going to school? You know, and that kind of questions like this that he can ask what turns out to be the slave owner, the master, questions about what grade level are the children in? And then later in the conversation, he'd ask the child what grade they were in. And he'd get two very distinctly different answers. Mm-hmm. And it would be very apparent to him that that's a tell. That the, this child is enslaved and is, is indebted to this man. And <clears throat> they choose the children because the children have small hands, the children are controllable, and the children are replaceable. Mm-hmm. Because there's a steady supply. Mm-hmm of children from the, from the neighboring villages that are in such desperate straits that they're willing 
be entrusted to their care, and they go out to the to the to the lakes. Mm-hmm. It's 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 remarkably heartbreaking and commonplace at the same time, mm-hmm. because it's right there. It's they're not doing anything to flee from you, right? So when you approach them. They're not going away. They're not hiding their practices. This isn't something that, you know, they're attempting to, to keep hidden from the world. Because for them, it, you know, the, the, the master feels like they have a right to this. Yeah, right? Paid for them. Yes. And, and in addition to that, when you come in and they are liberating these children and are eradicating them from this situation, the masters aren't fighting for them as you would expect. Because they have very little invested in them. Mm-hmm. It's not the same financial investment that it used to be historically. So the cost of, of acquiring a slave is so minimal by comparison now that there's no need to fight for them, mm. as you would expect someone to fight for them. And so that's the other part of this that's so heartbreaking is that you realize that that they've completely objectified these children, mm-hmm. and they're such a small investment that's of no concern to them. They're clearly not emotionally invested in them. And, and they probably feel that because of their such little value that they treat them accordingly. No question. No. So tell me your experience in this uh, refuge that was rescuing uh, children who had been enslaved. So there's a gentleman, James, who founded Challenging Heights. Challenging Heights is an organization that has dedicated itself to identifying children who've been enslaved. So they'll go into villages and they'll have conversations and they'll say, who in this village is missing? Who's no longer here? Your neighbor, you know. And so there'll be, there'll be people who will identify and say, well, you know, young Ebenezer is no longer with us. And so then they'll go and begin to do an investigation and they'll make a discovery as to whether or not Ebenezer was sold into slavery or not. And once they've identified, yes, he has, then they can begin to find out, well, where is it likely on the lake that Ebenezer finds himself today? And then twice a year they go and do these significant raids where they go out and they know that they're needing to liberate Ebenezer. So they're not just going out and, and randomly picking children off of the lake. They know that Ebenezer has a place in a home of support once they are able to rescue him and rehabilitate him. And so then that's what they do. They confront the masters, they confront these slave owners, and they say, we're taking this child back into custody and this child is going to return to his family. And once they've secured the child, then they have at the, the, the families a willing participant in this, then they go to a rehabilitation center. Because these children have been traumatized. Mm-hmm. You know, you can imagine the post-traumatic stress that they've experienced and that need then to connect and trust, but then also to educate. Mm-hmm. And so this rehabilitation center, which is a facility that, you know, feeds them and clothes them and houses them, but then it educates them as well. And that's such a powerful component of what it is that these children experience. And then they place them back into schooling, mm-hmm. and then they place them back in the hands of their family. And James is a remarkable story. He, too, was enslaved on Lake Volta as a child. And he ran away. He found the courage and the strength to say, I'm, I'm going to risk my life in order to find my freedom. And he did. And then when he returned to his village, he valued education so much that he was able to find odd jobs on the side in order to afford an education. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to university in Ghana and gets a master's degree and goes on to go into banking and finance and works for Barclay, the big, large international bank. And as a result of that work, then he finds a tremendous amount of wealth 
And he says, I need to do work that's significant. And so he went back and found the Challenging Heights. And now he, he is performing social purpose entrepreneurialism within Ghana, even if that structure doesn't exist. He started a restaurant, and he's using the profits of the restaurant to feed his Challenging Heights mission over there. He's a remarkable guy as well. I mean, you can just, you, when you have conversation with him, he's so grounded and so knowledgeable in what he stands for and how purposed he is. It's, it's very refreshing to meet people like that. What other memorable characters did you meet in the course of making this film? Well, Maurice Middleburg, so the executive director of Free the Slaves, who is bridging the gap between legislation and governmental action, the regulatory needs and the desire to see laws that are in place. Slavery is illegal everywhere, but it's not enforced everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so Maurice's organization is bridging those two worlds, the worlds of the need to implement and enforce law and awareness, and then resourcing these frontline organizations like Challenging Heights. Mm -hmm. And so that's the world in which Maurice finds himself. And so he's so completely knowledgeable in the historic context of slavery and the idea of what an important role it has played in who we have become as a people and the potential to eradicate it. Because it used to be that slavery was so much more ingrained in the economics of, company, er, of countries and or in the military of countries, and that's no longer true. It's no longer ingrained in the fabric of who we are culturally. It's no longer acceptable or embraced legislatively. And that makes it vulnerable to eradication. It means it's right there. The potential and the possibility of actually ending slavery is palpable. And Maurice is so beautifully knowledgeable in that, and he's so impassioned in what he does, that it's, it's really refreshing to spend time with him as well. So what do you think is lacking either in the, the, the will of people to eradicate it or, or information about it or, or awareness? I would say that you just, you spoke the word awareness, that most generally people aren't aware that modern slavery is existing. And when people are made aware, they become knowledgeable of this, and they're willing to, to find themselves taking action on that awareness, whether that's a small choice at the register in you know changing their purchasing habits, whether that's sharing this with other friends and family so that someone else may, I mean, imagine, it could be as simple as me sharing this news with you, and you making the decision to do something as dramatic as what Vivian's doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have the power in eradicating slavery by doing something just as simple as sharing it with someone. Or perhaps that you're, you become so convicted in this idea that you do what Maurice did and you commit a lifetime to an organization and doing frontline work against it. But, you know, it's up to you to find where you resonate with it within the continuum of action and then just make the choice that, you know, is a part of, of who you are. But, it, but slavery always stops when communities look to their left and to their right and they say, no more. Mm -hmm. When they all collectively say, no more. It's just not, we're not going to accept that this is a practice that we agree with anymore. And the more that we can make people aware of that, that's when it, we have effect on that. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that your film covers the range of flavors, if you will, of slavery. Um, we, we hear of uh, young girls who are stolen to become sex slaves. We, um, 
I saw in your trailer young boys who are carrying incredible loads on their heads of bricks. You mentioned that. And um, I mean, even, even uh, young girls who are put into domestic service and are ver veritable slaves. So, um, what do you think um, are steps that the run-of-the-mill individual can take to do something about it? The first thing that we feel that someone can do is to demand to know the story behind their products. Mm -hmm. If we as a marketplace say, I want a clean supply line in the goods that I'm purchasing, then we can create a market that says, if your goods are not shown, if you can't open your books to me, if you can't open your process to me, if you can't show me that what you're doing is a, a clean supply line, then I'm not going to support you. And if we do that, then companies will shift their practices mm -hmm. and will create clean supply lines. And so that's one of the, the, the biggest things that you and I can do is just to demand them to know the, pro the, the story behind our product. Now, we do know that certain food products, for example, have fair trade labels on them. Um, are there any other such labels or like certification bodies who will testify that this has a clean uh, there are, and there are dozens of them. There's Goodweave and Rugmark, and there, you know, and that's generally done by the practice of whatever the industry is. And mm -hmm. so, whatever it is that you're purchasing, it's it's just as simple as a Google search for fair trade practices within whatever purchase decision you're making, mm -hmm. in order to find out, you know, these are the groups that I can entrust mm -hmm. to tell me the history behind this product. Mm -hmm. How has making this film changed you? That's a significant question, and it's one that I'm discovering on a daily basis because this journey for me is not complete, right? As filmmakers, we're, in, we're, we're still in the midst of releasing the film and promoting the film and discovering even what layers the film has as we just completed sound mix yesterday. So I'm finding myself more aware of my humanity, and I'm finding myself more knowledgeable in the purchasing decisions that I'm making, and I'm finding myself having conversations with people that I didn't before. Mm -hmm. And so, as an example, over Thanksgiving meal, we're talking about fair trade practices as an extended family. I can guarantee you that in my 37 Thanksgivings prior, we've never had conversations about the supply lines of, of our food or, or the gifts that we were giving. I also find myself that much more aware of what's priority in life. And that they're so, you know, they're, that, that I need not concentrate on the external, you know, that, that I fall prey to so, so easily. And that I'm much more, much, you know, this Christmas, I'm not making gift lists for myself, but I'm making wish lists for the impact that I can have on others. And that's, you know, a complete shift in the way that, you know, that I certainly am approaching um, these monumental moments. Yeah. Now you said that you were doing the sound editing for the film. Uh, when are you projecting to release it? I can say with great enthusiasm that we are world premiering this movie February 1st in San Francisco. And then immediately thereafter we go on a 30 city tour throughout America and Canada. 
And so we start in San Francisco and we go south from there and then we head east and we go all the way and find ourselves in Tampa at a point and then we head north and we find ourselves in New York City and then we double back and we come back to Portland across Canada and then we end in the middle of April in Portland. And so we're visiting 30 Metro Marcus, 30 cities that we're going to be able to premiere the movie with, engage in conversation and, and share, it, you know, at the end of each career, Patrick and I will be attending every one of these. Mm -hmm. We're climbing in a van like you would if you were a garage <laughs> band, and we're bringing this thing, you know. Uh, to, yeah, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> see. But the, the, the idea is that we're really excited to be doing this in a personal way, and facilitating conversation about the documentary, and sharing our experiences with the audiences, and then um, very excitedly, beginning conversation around this topic to affect real change. Now you were a small studio that was doing really just commission work. How did you go about funding such an enormous undertaking? It's been a long, it's been a long time in the making. It's been nine years uh, that the seed, the desire to get into original programming, you know, birthed our studio but never manifested. And when we heard this story in particular, we had made a commitment to ourselves to wanting to get into original programming. We had come very near and close to doing it. But when we heard this story in particular, we dove in headfirst and we decided that we would invest as a studio in this story. And so we started without any support from anyone on the outside. And then we explored several different options in raising funds. I had been a part of a Kickstarter, a crowdsourced campaign in the past and had done that very successfully in another documentary before this one. But those campaigns can split the focus from the filmmaking, mm -hmm. and they, you know, demand a tremendous amount of commitment, energy, and communication. And so we wanted to focus solely on the film. And so we created a separate LLC, and we raised funds from private investors in order to support this. And um, it, they saw the same vision that we did, and they were willing to take the financial risk in part in order to help us do this. And uh, so that's that's the funding model that we embraced. Mm -hmm. And presumably you have a website for the film? We do. It is standwithmemovie.com and uh, I, there's the trailer for the film there and there's this 30 city tour that's there and so I would very much so encourage people to take a visit to, to see what they were doing and then to create an event of attending with us. Gather a group of you know, like-minded people who, you know, the idea that the, 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 of this film and the story would resonate with and come and join us, be a part of this conversation. One of the things I particularly resonated with in the, the trailer that you had created was when you talked about the difference between showing pictures of a child slave versus getting into their story. Hmm. And what's interesting about that is that the work that Lisa does created this story. Mm -hmm. Lisa's single frame is the one that's created our story. And that we, you know, as artists, have chosen film as our means of communication. And we are hopeful that our work will be as successful as Lisa's was. Because Lisa, when she took that image, had a singular goal to cause action and activity in the hearts of others. And her work very clearly did that as it ignited this story that is Vivian's. And we're honored to be able to go along her ride and to share that then 
You know, and so our role as storytellers is to bring about that awareness and the framework to have others go do something about it. Well, you heard it from Grant. Time to do something. What message would you like to leave with the reader? I would say, you didn't know. Neither did Lisa. Neither did Vivian. But now that you know, what will you do? What will you do indeed? We've been speaking with Grant Peel, the creative director of Still Motion Studios, and one of the directors of the amazing movie, Stand With Me. So go to the website, standwithmemovie.com. Thank you, Grant. Thank you.